Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Diana Ricard to tell us all about her book titled The New True Crime, How the Rise of Serialized Storytelling is Transforming Innocence, published by NYU Press in 2023. This is a really helpful, fascinating book that examines how serialized crime shows, of which I'm sure listeners can think of a number of examples, have become something of an American obsession. Whether this is TV shows, podcasts, Making a Murderer, Serial, Atlanta Monster, there's a whole load of them. Diana, in this book, very helpfully helps us understand this. Why are they so popular? What are they doing? How is this impacting the American legal and justice system? So Diana, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to help us unpack all of this. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda. Before we dive into your book, however, would you mind giving us a bit of background, introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. I am a criminal justice professor at the City University of New York. My first book was actually on sex offenders, and it it looked at the stigmatization. It was and it was very much based in the the sociology of deviance and particularly Irving Goffman's work. Um, Then, as I was looking for a next project. A good friend of mine, her brother, was wrongfully convicted, and he he is currently in prison. And this, you know, very personal story that I was close to, already having, you know, a real understanding of some flaws in criminal justice, and you know, the sort of the power of the state and the faith we have in, you know, prosecutors and police officers, already having a critical sense of that and seeing what happened to him made me really want to explore this more as, as an academic of what I can bring to to this topic. And as I was researching and coming up with questions I was curious about, particularly how it, effect, it affects families, you know, I realized there's really good scholarship on it already, really good scholarship, really good journalism um, and advocacy from organizations like the Innocence Project. And what we do as academics is we we try to figure out what is our unique contribution? Where are we in the conversation? And it was, you know, a little bit tricky for me as I was exploring it. And at the same time, I became aware of these series and not just aware of them, people recommending them to me because I study criminal justice, but, you know, how they took off in our culture and how popular they were, like something is happening here. And I realized I want to look at the where culture fits in a kind of critical criminology, where culture fits in both the, the scholarship around these issues and the public discourse around these issues. So the, the looking at culture at a moment when our culture is, is really engaged in these, in these issues, in criminal justice reform, in you know, a real sort of sense of urgency about policing and racial injustice. So, so that's what led me into to studying these series in, in much more depth. Hmm. Very helpful background. Thank you for starting us off with that. Um, 
In terms of obviously kind of what we're focusing in on in this book, could you tell us what you mean by the category new true and what examples um, the book covers and the hardest question, perhaps, how did you choose these examples given the number available? Right. So the the phrase I use to uh, to categorize the ones that I focus on is both new and true. So these are I see them as a new form of true of true crime storytelling at the same time that I see them as a new way of conceptualizing truth or a new way of formulating truth. So I see this book as about wrongful conviction and the negotiated nature of truth as explored in these particular series at this moment in time. So the series I chose, there's a ton, new crime, you know, is just, I mean, true crime is a huge part of the American entertainment landscape, you know, from the beginning of the United States. What I'm looking at here isn't, you know, the the serial killer on the loose. I'm looking at here the stories that question the legal outcomes, that question convictions, that raise the possibility of wrongful conviction and make us look at where the system goes wrong or can go wrong. So one thing that is specific to these is that they focus on on wrongful conviction. There are you know, there's so many in the true crime genre that don't do that. Um, the other thing is I chose really popular ones. Um, there some, some that I chose that I focus on, one is a little bit less popular, but is such a good example of these issues and um, otherwise an example of the genre. I also selected ones because I believe this is a new form of storytelling that is multiple episode focusing on one case with, you know, an attention to detail that we didn't see in the 1990s when we, you know, watched, when we watched and participated in these things. These are very different than Dateline episodes, you know, like it is uh, 10 episodes devoted to one case, looking at it from multiple perspectives and looking at, say, one piece of evidence from multiple perspectives. The other thing that differentiates these from traditional true crime is the engagement of the audiences. So the way these took off in social media and the way, you know, after seeing one season or a few episodes, the audience becomes involved in in doing investigation, in coming up with new evidence, in, you know, amplifying these issues. So they actually become quite meta because subsequent episodes or subsequent installments bring, show how the audience engagement has actually affected the outcome of the case. And so the audience becomes part of the story, as does the media. Um, and then again, you know, these, the, I chose cases that look at wrongful conviction, but in most of them, in, in all of them, there is debate. You know what I mean? These series do not end saying Adnan Syed is, you know, serial doesn't end with Sarah Koenig saying Adnan Syed is definitely innocent and I've exonerated him. Making a murderer does not end with Stephen Avery and 
Brandon Dassey are definitely innocent and we're exonerating them and they've been legally proven innocent. These are kind of open-ended cases still where the series makers have shown audiences, look, these are the questions. What do you think? And one chapter in my book, judging, uh, one chapter in my book, judging the jury looks at mainly on Reddit, because there's more lengthy debates, but looks at the way people debate these things. And we see that audiences are pretty polarized, like very passionately, people believe in the innocence of of the defendants who are the subject of these series. But also a lot of people are still convinced of their guilt. And that is something interesting to me, how I explore this from different perspectives, but how two people can see the exact same thing, can see the same video of an interrogation of a 16-year-old and have completely different views of it. And, you know, that's also true of election results, you know? Mm, Very much so. I, I think that that's a really... Um, having read the book, it, it gives a really good sense of kind of how you picked the examples and how they go together, really, in, in giving us a lens through this whole concept. It's not just a study of kind of, well, this particular podcast or this particular book, putting them together kind of helps us see that bigger picture, um, which is really interesting because some of it is quite new in terms of storytelling. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought that such a clear picture would come from mixing the different forms of media. But there really is kind of a new true formula, really, um, that you show in the book from these examples. Can you take us through what these components are? Absolutely. So like I said, they look at wrongful conviction. They mainly focus on very high profile crimes. They have this long form storytelling that is quite new. They are reliant on you know, new technology, new communications technology that, you know, people are watching these or listening to these at home. They're not going to movie theaters, you know, coming in every night for, you know, the next episode. So, you know, that, that is part of the, the, you know, that is part of where they exist. The ones that, just so your listeners know, the ones that I focus on, um, first of all, I focus on the Paradise Lost trilogy, which is a little bit of an outlier in the group that I focused on in that, first of all, it's a bit earlier. And these were three feature length documentaries, you know, rather than, you know, kind of a 10 episode series. But this case, the the Paradise Lost case, the West Memphis Three, you know, was just such a big deal for everyone who, who watched the original installment. And the back then, this was like 1996, chat rooms were really, the internet was new. And it was through chat rooms that the, these people that, you know, very deeply identified with the defendants started working on their defense. They were so outraged and their work, um, first of all, you know, opened the investigation in different directions and their their work and their role in the case to me marks a turning point in you know these sort of unidirectional series uh, unidirectional movies or documentaries so the paradise lost trilogy i also look at the staircase which was first made 
a number of years ago. And like I said, these cases get revisited. So the documentarian will, you know, do one series or one episode and then follow up. Where's the case now? What has happened since then? People are, are more interested. So the Staircase series is actually came out in three parts. The, the long part that was when the case was unfurling, like during the, the trial and focused on the trial, and then a few, several episodes at different, at different times following it. Um, so we have the, Par- the Paradise Lost trilogy, The Staircase, which is about the Michael Peterson case, Serial, which is, you know, the podcast that I think really changed how people saw these stories. Like that, that was a phenomenal, unprecedented sensation in terms of popularity. I also look at uh, HBO follow-up to the Sarah Koenig serial by Amy Berg on HBO, you know, called The Case of Adnan Syed. Then I look at a podcast called Atlanta Monster that um, focuses on the Atlanta murders from, you know, 1979 to 1981 that were really famous at the time and have, have sort of remained sort of a true crime fixation. And this case is, a, all of the cases, you know, are different. They're not all the same story or they wouldn't be popular because they're just doing the same thing over and over. But, um, you know, this, this defendant, was, uh, Wayne Williams, is black and his, his victims were black and he's been in prison for a long time. But so many questions remain in the case. And another reason I chose Atlanta Monster is I feel like, this is just my read on it, is that I was kind of following Sarah Koenig, what Sarah Koenig did with Serial, like her way of questioning, her way of bringing herself as a journalist and narrator into the story that she was telling and doing experiments on the evidence, you know, like driving around herself to figure out what the timeline would have been for how long it might have taken Adnan Syed to get to the Best Buy. You know, so um, Payne Lindsay did a very similar thing with Atlanta Monster. And that was also kind of followed up with an HBO a HBO six-part series or four-part series called Atlanta's Missing and Murdered. Uh, yeah, Missing and Murdered. And then I look at The Innocent Man, which is, that is the one that is a bit less popular, but it looks at all of the same issues in criminal justice that go wrong, like Brady violations and coerced confessions. And, um, you know, it it is absolutely within the genre, other than the fact that it was, you know, not as much as a, you know, popular sensation when it came out. Mm. That's really helpful, I think, in highlighting a lot of these themes and also especially, I think, the new aspect of um, this genre. So I'd I'd like to get into kind of some of the pieces now that you've brought up, now that we've got a bit of a foundation. Um, Can you take us through how the genre, the new true genre kind of overall in some of these examples, constructs deviance? And in what ways is this perhaps especially new? Is this different from other media portrayals of crime? If we look at it through that particular piece of the construction of deviance, what do we find? 
Well, one thing the show, they tend to do, all of them, as they're laying out the story, the first thing they tend to do is really show the state's case, really tell, give you, give the viewers and listeners what the case is, how the state built it. What is the, what is the crime? Why was this person a suspect? What is the evidence against them? And my experience is like, you kind of buy in, oh, they must be guilty. Look at all of these different things and look at them and how they're acting. And then they start to unpack and they pull, they pull back and they start looking at things, looking at behind the scenes or talking to people that weren't spoken to and gradually have us reconsider what we were so easily, you know, led to believe. And an important aspect of that is how easy it was to find the defendant guilty. And in addition to you know evidence that is initially presented as irrefutable is how the defendant is perceived and what how they're characterized and how easily we can allow the characterizations to lead to guilt so um, for instance i mean one of the reasons paradise lost what was so outrageous to so many people is that these these three teenage boys were a accused of murdering three young children and the picture painted of their guilt had to do with like their goth style of clothing and you know that they were you know socially outsiders in in their high school community and and also that the victims were middle class which is you know all, you know very consistent with traditional true crime and these boys were you know on the outs economically on the outside um you know, as Damien Eccles says in one of the follow-ups, I mean, we were absolutely poor trash and that's how, how we were seen. So one thing that is, that is quite to me both surprising and unsurprising is how, you know, as much as sophisticated as we have gotten, I think as a, as a society, as an educated society in so many ways, that these really old-fashioned, traditional, simplistic, facile tropes are still so used, you know, so someone who is poor, someone who dresses differently, someone who listens to oppositional music, um, you know, like back then in the 90s, it was Marilyn Manson. Someone, I mean, the in three of these series that I look at, um, Making a Murderer, the Paradise Lost trilogy and the Innocent Man, the the defendants were very very poor and very vulnerable to to the state, and you know just um, it was so easy for people to to see them as bad, you know, and it just is you know of course listening to you know listening to Marilyn Manson you know doesn't make someone a murderer. You know, um, you know, certainly being poor doesn't make someone a murderer, and yet people are so easy to, it, you know, it's so easy to get someone to ascribe guilt to someone for that. What I found with the middle class defendants was they weren't. It was a, it was slightly less easy, you know, in the case of Michael Peterson. It was it, it, possibly less easy to ascribe guilt to them, but the, it was. Michael Peterson was accused of being bisexual and that was equated with his guilt. 
And the fact that he was hiding his bisexuality or they believed he was hiding his bisexuality from his wife made him even more suspicious because you can't believe appearances. Um, Adnan Syed was a very typical, popular, middle-class teenager and but also he was Muslim. And in the the initial court processes and in his bail hearings, his Muslim being Muslim and, you know, his religion and his, you know, ethnic identity was used to cast him as untrustworthy and dangerous. And, you know, you would think those stereotypes wouldn't have so much sway, but they, but they absolutely, they absolutely did. And in, Wayne Williams' case, this is fascinating. It is more complex in some ways. Um, on one hand, because he was a, a black man, it was, I mean, his, his race was very, very, very important in the investigation and in the way, you know, in the way he was, became a suspect. But also, he was also middle class. Also, what was used to cast him as deviant is he had these hobbies that were kind of unusual. Like he built a radio station. He was a loner. Um, You know, he was involved in, you know, being a talent scout. And, you know, it's just, in short, he he was easy to be seen as a weirdo. And so in these series, the kind of traditional ways of looking at deviants are what is used to render these defendants guilty but then what the film the documentarians do is they make us look critically at that and so they offer a critical perspective on you know the the way we give way too much credence to stereotypes and so that is a diff, that is a very different way from traditional true crime of you know looking at social deviance now the other thing they do um, is because they're pointing the finger at state actors. They're pointing the finger at police officers. They are pointing the fingers at prosecutors and to some extent at, at juries. Um, but so in this sense, the bad guy is the state. And we are they take us through step by step coming to suspect the state as having perpetrated a crime against you know, an innocent citizen. And that is also a very new way of painting deviance, of having us think of deviance as having us reframe good guys and bad guys. Hmm. I thought that that was perhaps, if I had to pick, the most interesting thing of how these the new true conceptualizes the state in this particular way. Can you tell us more about kind of the implications and the impacts of this way of looking at the state? Yeah, so I think in some ways this is new, and in some ways the the foundations for this have have been laid in entertainment quite a long time ago. Because when I was, um, you know, closely reading and analyzing, kind of scene by scene, how the, how they accomplish this, I realized that there is there is a similarity with you know, conspiracy movies, like the conspiracy movies of the 70s. Like Americans are are very kind of skeptical and suspicious of power at the same time that they have these traditional law and order views. So in the in the 
conspiracy films, it, it is elite deviance that is being looked at. And is, it is this idea that, you know, lurking behind the facade are very powerful actors who are very corrupt, um, you know, manipulating things for their own profit, you know, for, for very bad motives. And so I think we're kind of primed to, to, you know, be open to that. And what these series do is they, they, so, so that kind of, I don't know, maybe even paranoia exists in audiences that can be maybe tapped into. And then they, they show us these, these really, you know, they, they show us videos of police interrogating teenagers in, I mean, I mean to, like I said, this is something that people look at differently is people will look at the same video and take it away differently. But it, you know, to many people, including myself, it is just, it is just awful. It is, it is, it is cruel. It is, it is wrong. And they do, this is just an example of many, of many things that are shown in this series. They do this with a sense of arrogance and impunity that for many people, including myself, is offensive. And many of, so many of these state actors, we see them doing bad things. We see them having evidence in their file that they are not turning over. You know, we see them do these bad things, but we also are characterizing them, attributing personality to them. Many of these, many of these people, especially in the visual documentaries, you know, come across as, as smarmy as you know very unappealing like as as arrogant as one person on reddit said of making a murderer he said or she said never have i seen so many punchable faces you know like these these people inspired outrage you know as opposed to looking at these horrible crimes that the defendants were accused of the defendants in these series especially the the poor defendants especially the defendants you know who are existing in poverty they they come across for many viewers as so vulnerable as as so sympathetic and you know as so helpless in in the face of you know the power of the state you know to strong arm to strong arm people into confessions to strong arm juries into a into verdicts, you know, based on excluding evidence, based on, you know, all all of these things that the series show us are unjust, or many, you know, if you have a if you have a, a robust due process philosophy, are unjust. Hmm. Lots. Um, I, I think it, the idea of being primed for it. I admit I learned that from the book because I, as I said, kind of came into it and was like, "Ooh, this seems new and interesting," and then I went, "Oh." actually, there is this whole history that I had not really been aware of and thought about. So that was really helpful, especially when we think about kind of, I suppose, an even bigger question, right? There's the, how do these series think about deviance? How do these series or media objects think about the state? But you mentioned something earlier on that I'd love to come back to. There's a bigger question here about what do we as a society think about truth, so what are the implications and impacts of this genre on those concepts? So the, the, a connection between, you know, like the, the conspiracy, you know, the, the conspiracy films of the 70s and conspiracy entertainment is also important because all of these series are entertainment. 
And as entertainment, they require similar things that other forms of narrative, other forms of entertainment, fictional forms of entertainment require, which is a kind of a sense of suspense, a sense of titillation, a, a bad guys, you know, people, people to hate people, you know, like with the, the, the person saying punchable, punchable faces, that is like a visceral reaction. And when we watch a lot of things, we want our, a sense of adrenaline going. And one form of adrenaline is this kind of uncertainty. And these series explore uncertainty and make us sit with uncertainty in a way that keeps people going to the next episode. I mean, all of making a murderer is 20 hours. That's a lot of time to give, give to something, you know? And that, that uncertainty is, you know, is the undercurrent of all, all of these series. And with the, the middle-class defendants that I was talking about, who are, you know, who are kind of seen as concealing their true nature, like, oh, they seem as a upright, middle-class, you know, well, socially well-engaged and positioned person, but look, they're, they're a terrible murderer underneath appearances. There's this distrust that, um, you know, that is also a theme in American thought. Uh, you know, to go back to Goffman and the presentation of self in everyday life, one observation he has that is really important is that we all know everybody else is presenting a self. You know, we, we understand that this is, this is what social life is. And if you think about that, that can point to a kind of dis-ease that we have maybe very, very deep about, about the people around us. So there is this way that we exist with uncertainty, this way that we enjoy uncertainty as entertainment. But in these series, the consequences of choosing a truth rather than existing with uncertainty are very, very serious. You know, these, these men are all serving life sentences. And the idea that an innocent person is serving a, a life sentence for, you know, something they didn't do, that is, you know, the, the Kafka-esque nightmare, that is, that is a horror. And so on one hand, you have the stakes of truth being so important and so serious and then on the other hand, we seem not able to agree on truth. And I make a connection between, you know, what is now being called post-truth politics, because there is more and more, you know, not under the surface, but right, you know, on your cable TV, there is more and more this overt conversation about how truth is relative. You know, there's alternative facts and that we, you know, that we have to move on from this idea of absolute truth. Yet, you know, someone absolutely did kill Heyman Lee. And, you know, someone absolutely killed those three boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. And someone is absolutely in prison for those crimes. I mean, the West Memphis three are, are out now. But um, so uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. So but so so, you know, Seeing truth as negotiated has 
can have consequences because, you know, if you see truth as negotiated in a trial process where you have a, a defense attorney offering one narrative, the prosecution offering another narrative, they give you the, the building blocks to come to a truth. And in that way, truth is negotiated. The, ver- the jury decides on a verdict. In our politics today, there's, there's kind of this sense of like, you have your truth, I have my truth. We, what is, what is happening? I mean, I, I, you know, as I was writing this, I can't not link it to my experience of the Trump era and this hall of mirrors I felt myself in, you know, like turning from different cable news channels and that half of, half of the country has, is living in a completely different reality. And so it was experiencing that in, you know, in my lived life as someone who reads the news and then reading these Reddit posts where people have diametrically opposed, mutually exclusive interpretations of watching the same series that I watched. Mm. This, of course, part of the reason it's so impactful to see these different perspectives um, kind of being so different from each other and so not in conversation is, as you said a few minutes ago, the idea that this has such high stakes, right? Not just that people definitely are dead, um, but also the punishment is quite high stakes, right? Life in prison is really quite a lot. So in some senses, it makes sense that people are kind of like, well, we really have to make sure that we get it right. And we have to go back and pick at every little thing. But then there's also these other aspects of, okay, but then hang on, what about facts? And how do we think about coming together and having conversations? So how do you think that this new true genre has influenced conceptions of punishment? I I will answer the question about punishment, but I want to go back to facts. And there is a a series, an episodic series called Exhibit A on Netflix that they are short episodes. I highly recommend them. Each episode looks at a, a form of evidence that we tend to think of as irrefutable, like video evidence. And it it shows what we what we think of as a fact as often being kind of constructed and often being manipulated in how we by changing the way we by changing our perception. And that is very unsettling. And so so what we mean by by facts is, you know, it's it, it is not as hard and fast and black and white as we would like to think. Now, in terms of punishment, to go, to go back to the, what you're really asking, one of the limitations of these series that focus on wrongful conviction is they get people very much advocating for the individual defendant of the case. But they, because they're innocent, because of that nightmare of an innocent person being sent to prison for something they didn't do. And, but it doesn't get us to look critically at criminal justice, at what we do, the way we punish the people that are guilty. It can leave, it can leave people feeling like, oh yes, like a a life sentence for someone who really did this, that we don't question that, you know, solitary confinement for people in prison for, for years. We don't question that. Uh, the conditions of prison, the death penalty, these series do not question those. 
Um, they, they question due process. And, you know, I'm coming from this as, as a punishment scholar who is, you know, deeply concerned with what we do to people who are guilty and, you know, the, the way we, many people do not question is a life sentence for murder or, um, in, in criminal justice, we talk about the, the goals of punishment. You know, we talk about deterrence. We talk about rehabilitation. We talk about incapacitation. If someone is, you know, a school shooter, extremely violent, out of control, ill person, really the goal is just to take them off the streets, you know, so that, that people can be safe. But a very important real goal of punishment is retribution. And, you know, the criminal justice system as expressive of our moral outrage and our need for justice to be done by someone suffering in proportion to the suffering that they caused. This is fundamental. But we also do not, we also want a rational system. So we want to balance the need for that with a rational sense of of how we administer punishment, what are the consequences? What are the broader consequences? What, how is society served by these long sentences? And in our culture of punishment that we exist in today, that um, we've, we've been in for at least 50 years, is very much geared towards, uh, our politics are very much geared towards rousing people's outrage and rousing people's fear so that they don't question when politicians want mandatory minimums and when politicians want to lock the door and throw away the key, when politicians, you know, don't look at what are the circumstances that, that create, you know, a lot, you know, create drug epidemics or create the the conditions that people are committing crimes in or, or the conditions where, you know, it, we have uh, horrible, horrible disparity, racial disparities in the United States where, you know, black people are, are imprisoned at, you know, you know, much, at much more higher rates than, than white people. The, the consequences of mass incarceration on, you know, on, on different minorities and and on our society as a whole, as a you know democratic, equitable society. So I you know the the new true by focusing on wrongful conviction and championing the innocent do not do not look at those things. And but at the same time, they humanize defendants in a way that you know possibly has. Um, possibly, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I want to think about that more, but, but is possible, you know, see, seeing someone as human and as vulnerable might temper how we see someone who's, who is guilty, but is also human and vulnerable to the system. And then the, their focus on due process, their focus on Brady violations where prosecutors do not turn over evidence that, um, you know, that could help the defendant, um, their focus on injustices of the police, their focus on violations of Fourth Amendment protections, their violations of Fifth Amendment protections, all of that helps all defendants, you know, if we, if we get those things under control, if we, if we are, demand that our 
actors in the criminal justice system be accountable to their wrongdoing, everyone benefits from that guilty and innocent. So then given this sort of mixed bag of kind of where the focus is and what it's doing systemically, to what extent is there capacity for this genre to act as catalysts for reform within the system? My view is, and you know, I talk about this at length in the at the end of my book, in my chapter, The Will, The Will to Punish. I think these series coexist at a moment where there is a, a much an, a public that is much more well informed about the injustices of the criminal justice system, much more informed about uh, you know policing um, in black communities. And I kind of attribute this where I point to when Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow came out in 2010. I feel like that marked a turning point where the critical criminologists had you know, been looking at this issue for, for 20 years, you know, mass incarceration as a crisis and, um, you know, the, the consequences of, of the war on drugs. And, and, but when Michelle Alexander, when her book came out, that took those arguments and that sense of crisis and that sense of injustice um, and that sense of racial social control and brought it to the mainstream, you know, to everybody. You didn't have to be a student of criminal justice anymore to be, you know, very well informed about this. And so the, you, and the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is this, you know, taking to the streets, demanding change. So even as these series are limited, I think they coexist in this moment of a demand for criminal justice reform, uh, an understanding of the workings of power and a sense of this is, this is not right and we need to reform these things. So I, I definitely don't credit them, credit these series with, you know, inspiring criminal justice reform, but I think they would not have the same impact if, if they weren't, you know, being produced at the same time, they might not even be produced. You know, they might not be as popular if people weren't already concerned and skeptical. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes quite a lot of sense. Hopefully some of that um, interest in popularity will come over to people wanting to read your book as well. Um, because, of course, we've only been able to really kind of cover the main points in highlight form, I suppose. Um, obviously, there's a lot of depth on each of these topics and more in the book itself um, that I'll have to point listeners to. Um, but I guess that does leave me with a slightly strange question because it's not about this book. In fact, it's about whatever you might be working on next. If there is something that you'd like to share, whether or not it's a book um, that listeners might want to be aware of. Yeah, um, so I... I hesitate to say this out loud and record it because I might be held to it. My my process of research is starting with something I'm curious about and learning more about it and questioning it and then go in different directions. So right now, what I'm curious about is, is fraud. And I mean, coming from this idea, you know, that we don't trust appearances and I'm interested in the fraud of the wealthy and, 
you know, this idea of wealth as a mirage that, it, you know, that is exposed when, you know, it turns out that, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a, a, a wealthy lawyer here who was embezzling funds from victims and all of, you know, his performative wealth was, was fraud, was stolen. Uh, so I want to look at that. And, you know, something I do in, in my book that you just, you know, you just pointed to that I go into these things in depth. My, my book is very analytic. I look at all of the different parts and, you know, in, in a lot of detail, you know, and I think doing that gets people to think critically and gets people to think of how different things are happening at once. And I would like to do that, you know, with um, with media images and media discourse around the crimes of the elite and and fraud, the fraud of wealthy people, um, in in popular media. But I, you know, a year from now, I don't know. <laughs> no, fair enough. We will mark that down as thing you are curious about, which I think is a great way of phrasing kind of initial research projects. So thank you for sharing that with us and best of luck wherever that might take you. Um, and of course, while you are exploring the new curiosity, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The New True Crime, How the Rise of Serialized Storytelling is Transforming Innocence, published by NYU Press. Diana, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Miranda. I really enjoyed this conversation.